listen to them. Children of the night. What music they make. Welcome back to Scored to Death, the podcast, the official companion podcast to the book Scored to Death, conversations with some of horror's greatest composers. The book is available from Silman James Press and can be purchased on Amazon and from other book retailers. It features 14 in-depth interviews with renowned film music composers that have made significant contributions to the horror genre. My name is Jay Blake Fischera, and the goal of both the book and this podcast is to explore the craft of film scoring and celebrate the amazing composers that do it. I'm incredibly excited because today's guest is easily one of the composers that I get the most requests for. In my last episode, I chatted with Donald Rubenstein about his collaborative relationship with George Romero. This week, I'm continuing the Romero love as I sit down for part one of an in-depth conversation with another of the late iconic filmmakers' most significant collaborators, the great John Harrison. A notable writer-director in his own right, Harrison has not composed music for many films, but his work with Romero has given the horror genre two of its most beloved scores, for Creepshow and Day of the Dead. Okay, without further ado, let's get started. I would love to start off by talking about your musical background. I know you played in bands before you got into film, so I was just wondering if you could talk a bit about that, uh, how you fell in love with music, what were your first instruments, what kind of music did you listen to, that kind of stuff. Well, I started out as a musician, I guess, from a fairly early age. I took piano lessons, wasn't very good at it, didn't want to practice, so I didn't stay long with that. In church choirs and glee clubs and uh, all kinds of choral music. And so I spent a lot of time doing that. And then once I got to be a little older, I uh, picked up a guitar, started playing guitar, put a band together with some friends of mine in high school. And my brother, who was a phenomenal musician himself, a drummer. And uh, we had a band all the way through high school and then college and then on the road. That Pretty much the same personnel in that band for all those years. And uh, we basically did the club circuit, played professionally uh, all through those years, even through college. And then afterwards, we were on the road for a number of years. And then when that band broke up, I moved back to my hometown, which was Pittsburgh. And I'd studied drama and theater in school. But I was pretty much of a self-taught musician. So uh, when I got back to Pittsburgh, a friend of mine that I'd gone to high school with was the manager of Roy Buchanan's band. Roy Buchanan was one of the great guitarists of the 60s, 70s, and 80s. Unfortunately, he's no longer with us. But he was right up there with Clapton and Hendrix and all those guys. Not as famous, of course. But he was putting together a new band. And my friend asked me if I wanted to join. And I did. I ended up being on the road with him for about four years. And after I left that, I had been in my off days working with my other partners on putting a small film production company together and doing music for our little projects, including a low budget feature that we begged, borrowed and stole money to get made. And we encountered George Romero in Pittsburgh during that time. 
Uh, I was aware of him, the films he was making, but we started working with him and uh, he and I became really good friends. And at one point, his then producer, Richard Rubenstein, asked me to come out and be his assistant director on Creepshow. Before we get all into that, I have some questions about more detailed stuff about some of the other things. Sure. I'm a blues and rock musician in New York, so I'm a big fan of Roy Buchanan. I would love to know. Oh, okay. Even though it's not film related, but you know, what was it like being on the road with him? Do you have any specific stories that come to mind that kind of fond memories of being on the road with him? You know, Roy was... uh... He was a phenomenal musician, and he was really a a very interesting guy as well. And one of the interesting things about him is that he never wanted to rehearse very much. He never wanted to practice. And uh, my first experience with Roy, well, my band had played, had had opened for him on a couple of concerts. And that was Homebrew was your band at the time? Yeah, man. Wow, you've done your homework. Yeah, that was Homebrew. That was the band that we had had in different under different names all the way through high school and college and then out on the road playing the bar circuit. We had opened for Roy a couple of times. And when he was making some chain personnel changes, he wanted me to Jay Rich, my friend who was his manager and Roy asked me to join the band. So I thought, okay, well, here's what's going to happen. I'll go down. We'll have a set of rehearsals. I'll learn the show and then off we'll go. Uh, well, it wasn't like that at all. Dick Heinze was his keyboard player at the time, and uh, I called Dick and I said, well, listen, man, what should I know? I mean, what uh, what can I do to get ready? He said, uh, just learn the tunes off the records and show up. <laughs> <laughs> so my first gig with him was at a place called My Father's Place out on Long Island. I flew into New York, uh, got in a taxi, got out to the club, walked into the dressing room. Jay said, Roy, you remember John? He was with Homebrew. Yeah, man, how are you? I said, fine, man. Uh, what uh, what are we going to do? He said, well, uh, you know John to be good. I said, yeah. I said, okay, let's go. <laughs> <laughs> you played bass for him? Yeah, I played bass for him. And so we went out, and uh, without any rehearsal, we just started playing the tunes. And that's how, really, I learned his show. I learned the tunes off the records. And uh, a week later, after that gig, we were in the studio recording uh, That's What I'm Here For. I think it was his third album. So, I mean, man, it was out of the pan and into the fire. Yeah. But it was it was fantastic. I wrote a couple of tunes on that album with him. And then uh, back out on the road. We had a lot of great tours, a lot of great gigs. But it was, it was kind of funny because uh, I'd just get the call. Okay, man, come down to the airport. We're off and running. We're going here. We're going there. Or... We'd travel around in a van, which was just this old van driving like, (laughs) you know, we'd do a show in Baltimore one night and then we'd be in Alabama the next night. and We'd just drive, get to the hotel, catch a couple hours, go out, do the gig. Played with a lot of great other bands, met so many of my heroes, you know, like Muddy Waters and Jeff Beck and, you know, people like that on the road that we uh, either opened for or were on the same bill with toured overseas, did a great tour in Japan in, I think, 77, which uh, was released as a live album, fantastic show.
So uh, I made a couple of other albums with him, worked with Atlanta Records and Arif Marden. So, uh, man, it was a ride. It was a great time. And Roy, you know, his we would make up arrangements among us just on stage, basically. Yeah. Um, the second incarnation of that band had uh, Ron Foster on drums and Malcolm Lukens on keyboard. And we really developed a very tight kind of group sound to back Roy up. And we would, I don't want to say out of boredom, but just out of wanting to come up with something, we would invent arrangements on the spot. You know, it would be a, a rhythm kick from uh, Ron from Bird, or it would be some figure that Malcolm was playing that I'd pick up on. And we would just invent, just spontaneously, we would invent the arrangements. We never really rehearsed. We never practiced. Yeah. Well, that's kind of the beauty of live music, especially when it comes to like jazz or blues or some rock and roll, the kind of the spontaneity of it and the chemistry between the bandmates is, you know, it's, it's so, that's it. it's so important. Yeah. It's so critical. And then of course, Roy being the musician that he was, man, you could just play off him all day. You know, he would just, uh, we're never a dull moment because it was never the same tune any particular night. It was always different. Yeah. And it would depend on his mood, where he would go. And he wouldn't, we never had set lists. He would just start playing. It would either be the introductory chord or a note. Uh, and by the time we got to, you know, we'd be out on the road like a two-week tour or something like that. By the end of the two weeks, you could almost just anticipate telepathically which song he was going to do next, depending on his mood. Yeah. But it was always just a musical cue. He never said, okay, let's do this or let's do that or let's write up a set list. It was just all musical communication. So why'd you end up giving up that lifestyle? Well, you know, after a while, uh, after four years, I don't want to say it wasn't going anywhere, but Roy had a certain approach to what he was doing. And I just felt that I wasn't growing, I guess, is the way to put it. That sounds kind of cliched, but that's kind of the way it was. I, I wanted to push it a little bit further. There were a lot of people outside the band and the management that wanted Roy to be something that maybe he wasn't. You know, there are all these apocryphal stories about him being invited to join the Rolling Stones. And there was some recordings we did in New York with Atlantic where they wanted to surround him with pop musicians and try to turn him into kind of a rock star kind of persona. Yeah. And we didn't have that kind of show at all, man. We were a blues rock band. We just stood up there and played and uh, we tried to look good. We tried to look clean, but we were not kiss, you know? <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> so it just, uh, I always felt that the best playing Roy did was when uh, we were after hours in the hotel room or something and he would just play. Yeah. And uh, we would just sit around and listen. And I, I wanted at one point to just go into the studio with him and I wanted to, okay, Roy, give us a lick and we'll, we'll figure out a little arrangement behind the lick. And if it lasts a minute, great. If it lasts two minutes, great. If it lasts 10 seconds, great. Let's just record all of those things. And then what we'll do is we'll find ways to just segue between them. Because in reality, he was more of an instrumentalist than, yeah. say, a songster. I thought, man, that would be a way to cement his legacy as this genius guitar player. But I could never convince everybody to do that because obviously – 
that was not the way you sold records back in the day or get radio airplay back in the day. So I guess my approach was, say, a more kind of jazz or alternative kind of way of looking at what Roy could do, but it didn't kind of pan out. So after four years, it was kind of like, okay, I've done this and I should move on. And I wanted to explore other things. The, f- the filmmaking was something I'd always really wanted to do. We had a, our little company was really thriving. My relationship with Romero was growing. And uh, so I figured I needed to take a break. And so he called me a few months after that and wanted to know if I could come back. And I, man, I was sorely tempted because we used to have a lot of fun on the road, man. There were yeah. great times. I was really sorely tempted, and uh, but I had to say, you know, I've got this. We were actually in the midst of a another production at the time. We were putting this film together, and I really couldn't walk on my partners for a couple of months to go back out on the road with them. Sure. So I had to kind of turn it down. I always wondered what that would have been like. <laughs> so you're in Pittsburgh. How exactly did you meet George Romero? Well, that's an interesting story in and of itself. Um, as I said, my partners and I had a small production company. And this was the Image Works? This was the Image Works, and uh, Dusty Nelson and Pat Booba were my partners. And Dusty walked in one day, and he put a newspaper in front of me and said, hey, man, look at this. It was an article about George and his then-partner, Richard Rubenstein. They had they'd raised some money and were starting a, an ABC television series called The Winners, which was a documentary series about major sports figures in the country. And Dusty said, we should call him, man. We should call him and uh, offer our services because we've got gear and and uh, we're filmmakers and maybe he, you know, we could work for him. So I just picked up the phone, man, and I called his office, which was just down the street from ours. Never met the guy. And I'm expecting a, a secretary to answer and then I'll leave my name and hopefully he'll call me back. Well, he answered the phone. <laughs> and... I said, oh, uh, well, uh, George, my name is John Harrison, and we have this company and blah, 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 blah. And before I got through my pitch, he said, well, where are you guys? I said, well, we're, I gave him the address. We're right up the street. He said, okay, I'll see you in five minutes. He clicked, he hung up. And he walked into our offices five minutes later, and we showed him a couple of films that we were doing. And before we even got through those, he reached over to the edit machine, turned it off, and said, okay, man, let's work together. And that started it. So we went out on the road with him and Richard for however long it took to do that series. Uh, Dusty was cinematographer on a bunch of them, and Pat was editing and doing sound on them. And then through that, we just all became really good friends because we all shared the same enthusiasms. And, you know, back in the day, it, it really was independent filmmaking. Like, it was not like there was no Weinstein Company. There was no Miramax. Yeah. There was no Sony Classics. It was just scrape it together, man. And if you had uh, some some will and some equipment, you could do it. And it didn't matter what you knew because you had to do a little bit of everything. Because yeah. uh, you know none of us had gone to film school, so we just made it up as we went. And you jump ahead. Uh, you were talking about how you became the assistant director for Creepshow, but by that point, had he made Martin? Was he making Martin? Were you around for that kind of stuff? I know that you yeah. have cameos and things like Dawn of the Dead. Yeah, that's that's exactly what happened on the on the success of the winners. Richard was able to pull some money together and do Martin. Now, I wasn't directly involved in Martin, but they shot it in my partner's house, my partner's parents' house down in Braddock. Oh yeah. So we were all kind of 
tangential to everything that was going on. We had our own gigs and George was doing that, but we'd all get together and watch rushes and we would talk about the films. And that came out, was very well received. And that led to the making of Dawn. And we all kind of, again, worked on it tangentially as we were doing our own thing. And then, like you say, I got the the cameo to be Screwdriver Zombie. (laughs) So, and after that, that was so successful that Richard was able to put a three-picture deal together for him and George. The first one of those was this labor of love that George had always wanted to do called Night Riders. Yeah. And by that time, the image works had kind of run its course. We'd made our own little movie called Effects, and it had a limited distribution. And Pat Buba, my one partner, went off to be George's assistant director on that, and I took a small role in that movie. And then the next movie after that was going to be Creepshow. At first, I wasn't involved in it, but one day I'm sitting in my apartment. I got a call from Richard Rubenstein who said, Hey, man, what would you think about coming out and being George's assistant director? I said, well, Richard, man, I don't know how to be an assistant director. I'm like supremely unqualified for that job. (laughs) And he said, oh, it doesn't matter, man. It doesn't matter at all. All we really want is one of George's friends who has a sensibility about what he wants to do to be there so he can communicate to the set, keep the set running. I've got guys that I can hire that will do all the paperwork and all the union shit. and You know, don't worry about sort of the traditional way of being an assistant director. I said, well, man, okay, I'll do it if George wants me. Yeah. It was unbelievable, man. It was so great to be at his side through that entire production. I learned so much. I'd like to think I helped him get it done, but whether that's true, uh, who knows? But I had a great time, and it was one of it was a, a, a terrific production because a lot of us, you know, in Pittsburgh back in the day, there was this filmmaking community. So you worked with the same people a lot and you really became friends with them. And it was kind of like a little, to use another cliche, it was kind of like a little family, like a little theater troupe that yeah. everybody together and did projects. And then when they were over split up for a while, they'd come back together on the next one. And that's what it was like. So it was really just a, you know, and when you're a kid in your twenties and you're working with these big movie stars, from Hollywood and making a, a big movie. It was fantastic. Anyway, that's how that's how that got started. Yeah, I mean, I talked to Donald Rubenstein. Dr. D. Yeah, who's uh, Richard's brother, of course, and also scored Martin. and Yep, Knight Riders. One of the things we were talking about in terms of George is that he just kind of seemed to have a knack for sensing what maybe somebody's talent was and then kind of nurturing that like Michael Gornick becoming the DP for Martin was just kind of thrust on him (laughs) like hey you want to shoot the rest of this movie okay I mean Donald Richard introduced Donald to George and it seems to me that in some way maybe you well one him wanting to have you around but then two you know you then scoring that movie is just this other example of George wanting to be around people that he enjoyed and then also seeing something in them and then letting them go for it. That's exactly the way he was. He was an extremely generous artist, and he loved putting together people that could contribute to uh, what he was trying to do. He really resisted the whole Hollywood traditional way of making movies. He just wanted to get people together. And, you know, for a long time... (laughs) 
in some of these early productions, we didn't even have call sheets. Yeah. We would just, it was sort of like, okay, everybody show up at seven o'clock and we'll figure in the morning, we'll figure out what we're going to do. <laughs> and <it> was, okay. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> that was the way he loved to work. And Donald's right. He would find people that if you kind of shared the same kind of love and affection for things that he would find a way to pull you into his orbit and work on the movies together. He was incredibly collaborative. I could sit there and talk to him about ideas about, I mean, there was no doubt that he was the boss and he was going to be the director. But if I came up with an idea or if Nick Mastandria, who was key grip would walk up to him and say, Hey man, if we did it this way, we could do that. Yeah. No, uh, no problem with that at all. And he brought people along. I mean, Nick is another perfect example. Nick started out as basically a PA at 17 years old for George. And by the time he was finished, he was George's first assistant director. And now he's one of the biggest in Hollywood. He's one of the biggest first assistant directors there is doing all these huge movies and uh, television shows. And that's where he got his training. He worked his way up. Michael the same way, you know, he came in and just was working on George in various capacities and then ended up being his cinematographer. Yeah. So uh, it was the best film school we all could have gone to, period. How did your scoring creep show come to be? It's pretty straightforward. What George used to do was he would uh, score his movies with production music from the Capitol Music Library. We used to call them needle drops. Yeah. And uh, you could buy a license for X number of tunes and you would listen, they would send you this library of all these old scores and some of them you'd recognize from, oh, I remember that B movie I used to watch on television at 11 o'clock at night. I remember that music. So you'd get this, this music and you would go through and you'd lay it up against picture and see what worked. My day job is as an editor for reality TV or uh-huh. quote unquote non-scripted TV. And so most of what we do is with music libraries, a very similar process. Right. And so what people forget or didn't know about George is that even though he doesn't play, didn't play an instrument, he had an incredible musical sense. And you'll appreciate this, Blake, as being an editor, he would be able to take multiple cues from Capitol Music Library yeah. and cut them together, overlap them, mix them together, merge them, mash them. And he would create entirely new cues out of three or four other cues. Yeah. Because he was such a great film editor, he was able to do this. Back in the day, there was no digital. It was all celluloid and splicers and hand by hand, right? Yeah, yeah. That's the way he scored all of his movies. uh, Because he didn't have money for musicians or uh, composer or studio time. Sure, yeah. So when we got to Creepshow, that's what we were going to do. And he and I on the set would sit and talk about the music and what would be good on this scene. And... What would be, uh, how would we make this transition and so forth? And he would hum stuff. He would literally hum tunes and, 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 and mimic instrument sounds. <laughs> it was hysterical. <laughs> and he had this incredible library of film scores. He was an avid collector of film scores. And we would sit and we would just listen to him. And, we need something like this, man. And uh, Mike Gornick and I spent hours and hours going through that Capitol Library trying to find cues and laying them up against uh, the picture. But we got to the point, finally, where we had to say, you know, some of this music is really not up to the production values we've got in this film. The fidelity isn't so great. The music sounds kind of old-fashioned. 
it isn't really laying up great against the score uh, against the picture. And I said, well, I've got a Prophet Five, which was a really incredible instrument at the time. It was one of the most advanced music processors uh, that was out, uh, made by sequential circuits. Had incredible range of sounds and tones. And I said, maybe I can goose up some of the fidelity of this stuff. So I started to enhance some of the cues, but that wasn't really working either. And so I just started writing, uh, you know, original cues here and there. And George loved them. And so by the end of the day, I ended up scoring about 80% of the movie. And we needed a theme. We didn't have a theme. So I sat down and wrote that. And we had a little bit of money, and I went into a local studio that I'd worked in many times before with another friend of mine who was a music producer. He used to be with Homebrew. His name was John Sutton, and he produced the, the music, and the rest is history. So I know you said you guys were looking through the cues and finding cues and putting them up against picture, but by the time you came on to actually start writing some of the original music for it, was a lot of the film temp scored, for lack of a better term? Uh, yes and no. You know, uh, if we get to Day of the Dead, I'll tell you the difference between the two. But the short answer is sort of. <laughs> I guess where I'm going with it is, did you use those existing cues that you ended up not using in the film as kind of a guideline? Or were you talking with George right. and George giving you feedback? Like, how were the ideas communicated to you and then you put them into action. Well, this is the interesting thing about my relationship with George. Because I was his assistant director, I essentially knew what he was kind of after in each one of the segments of Creepshow. Yeah. Uh, if you recall, that movie has five different stories, and each one of them has a different tone. Mm -hmm. And we wanted to create a different sound for each one of those as well. I did the same thing with my Tales from the Dark Side movie. Sure. Give each little story its own identity. Yeah. So we did some temping, but I didn't really sit down and try to mimic what we had done, either stylistically or tonally, from the temp. I just went off and started writing. But the great thing was, because I had this relationship with George, I was, it, you know, traditionally a director and a composer don't work. Uh, hand in glove. What happens is the picture, I mean, unless you get to the point where you're like Spielberg and Williams, you know, that kind of thing. A composer is given a cut of the movie and he works to that cut. Obviously, there are going to be changes as you go through the mix and sometimes uh, the, the post-production is still going on. But the composer really doesn't sit down and work with the movie except after it's cut. In my case, I was able to have the director's ear all through production. And then while he was cutting the movie, I could record on my own gear little cues and take them upstairs and play them for them with a the picture. Yeah. And, oh, that's great, man. Can you jump up an octave here? Because this is where the sting is going to happen. Or can you give me a sting for this moment right here? Or let's just drop out the music right here because silence will be score enough. Those kinds of decisions could be made while they were cutting, which was fantastic. Yeah. Now, for time reasons, you can't do that much. I mean, it's, it's really a hard thing to do. But I had the freedom back then to do that. And then I could go back downstairs and make revisions to what I was writing in, in my own temp. So basically, I temped the movie before I went into the studio to record the final product. Yeah. Because George was such uh, an editor, I and mean, I think 
maybe in, in terms of filmmaking, maybe that was like his strongest area. It was like, it's clear when you watch, especially things like the crazies, there's just so many cuts. <laughs> oh, yeah. He was such a great editor. You know, you kind of talked about a little bit just a second ago, but were you giving him cues and then they were editing the cues to picture or were you eventually scoring uh, close to a locked cut? Yeah, that's what it was. I was scoring closer to a locked version of the movie. I wasn't giving him a bunch of music that then he could cut up to make work with the picture. Yeah. Now, that that's a sort of a philosophical thing, too, because he and I both loved movie music. I mean, we loved wall-to-wall score. And when you think back to the 40s and the 30s, well, not so much the 30s, but the 40s and some of the 50s, and then later, before we started getting into using pop music in, in film scores, the composers would write really the, the best ones would write music that emotionally conveyed exactly what was going on on the film, on the picture. Yeah. And those were the kinds of scores that George and I loved. It wasn't really enough for either one of us to just have a bed of music playing underneath sure. what was going on. It had to be emotionally fitting the picture so that when either the action or the emotions changed, the music changed with it and supported it. Not to telegraph it, not to tell the audience what they were supposed to feel while you're staring at a close-up, but to uh, enhance it. To And I, I used to say, and I still believe this, that music is as much a narrative element of any movie as dialogue or cinematography or production design. Sure. And so you have to approach it that way. And George agreed with that philosophy. But up until now, George was doing that kind of as an editor. Because I think if I recall, even That's right. even with Donald Rubenstein's music, I think it was basically he was just giving him cues, if I recall correctly. And then George was kind of putting them in. <laughs> I, I don't remember because I wasn't in, I wasn't involved with that that part of the process. So I don't know what Donald's and George's process yeah. was at that time. But I think you're probably right. Donald was at a distant location and he would write music and send it to George and George would make it fit. Yeah. But for Creepshow and then much more for Day, yeah. I basically tempt the movie while we were editing it. And then once that was done and I knew what the locked picture was, I went into the studio and recorded the score in full fidelity for the mix. Do you recall what inspired the main theme, like uh, whether it was other music or discussions that you had with George? It's a very particular theme, and there's a lot of people that love it, including myself. Um, was there anything that specifically inspired that feel? Well, I wish I could say there's a, a clean answer to that. I'm not sure I can. There wasn't anything that uh, George and I talked about that was a musical style we wanted to ape. Yeah. But I think that the film itself was inspiration enough. I mean, frankly, it was a comic book, right? Sure. And it was about this kid in his upstairs bedroom who was pissed off at his father. And there was a childlike quality to that. And I guess I was just sitting down at the piano and just banging away and I came upon a motif that I really liked which is the beginning da 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 da, da. <laughs> and I just kept working on that 
then the undertones, the sort of melody that's played in the bass lines, which is kind of weird. <laughs> came out of adding to the lightness of the overall melody. Although that upper register piano thing, it makes a transition in a, into a different mode at the very end, which is kind of weird and, yeah. and creepy. But anyway, so I the bass line was giving it all that kind of supernatural horror tension underneath. And then when we would uh, modulate to the fifth, and it would become a major chord change. The idea of having a chorus, and this was a, a vocal arranger that I had worked with on previous shows, the idea of going into that na-na-na-na-na-na just came, it just felt like, yeah, man, that's exactly what this movie's about. You know, it's that kind of tongue-in-cheek, yeah. almost infantile kind <laughs> of fun so we added that, and then she came up with a brilliant idea to do a uh, almost whispery kind of dies irae in the background. I'm getting a little off track here, but that's how it all came together. I really, you know, just kind of all fit together. George loved it, so we went full bore on it. I mean, well, to great effect. Film scores in general, especially horror film scores, have grown in popularity, and Creepshow is definitely one that's been, I think, at the forefront of that. It works so well that it's not just the movie, but the music itself has had longevity. Well, the other thing about it is that I think that as composers, if I may be so pretentious, <laughs> um, we never looked at it as uh, slumming. You know, the score should be as interesting and as complex as a score for, say, Chinatown or for Godfather. It should not be just like, oh, well, let's just throw in a bunch of like crazy stings and creepy, creepy sound effects and and creepy motifs and just make it, you know, like downscale. Yeah. Let's elevate the movie with the music. And I think composers... I tried, and I think others have tried to elevate the genre, and that's why people love the movie scores. And if the music can make you relive the movie when you've got it on the record player, listen to me, I sound like an old fart. <laughs> Vinyl's big right now. It's making, it's yeah, making man. a comeback. <laughs> it's come back. <laughs> but if it can make you relive the movie, then it's a successful score. Yeah. I mean, I think, for instance, a perfect example of a piece of music in Creepshow that I think really elevates this intentionally campy comic book feel that the movie has. Like in the crate sequence, where with some of the piano stuff you're doing is, is absolutely beautiful and it's some of my favorite music in the film. Do you recall coming up with that music? I mean, was your process pretty much like watching and improvising until you found stuff? Every segment uh, had a different feel cinematically. Uh, and narratively. And that to me felt like classic old style Hollywood movie making. Yeah. Different from Tide You Over, different from Jordy Verrill, different from Father's Day, and definitely different from Creeping Up on You. Yeah. So I thought, well, then it should really have a classical sound. 
And I was just sitting at the piano and just playing that one little motif over da 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 da. And uh, you can tell why I don't sing uh, in any of my work. But um, I, I thought, well, this is, I like this little motif here, so I'm just going to expand on it and give it sort of a classical feel. I mean classical in the sense of classical music sure. feel uh, in terms of orchestration. And, and uh, it's, I thought it fit the, the picture pretty well. Of course, then you get to the segment right after that, which is they're creeping up on you. And that has such a cold and sinister feel to it that they're really uh, the music for the crate would never have worked on that uh, segment. Yeah. Instead, because of the tone of it, because of E.G. Marshall's phenomenal performance, I decided that this was really the, the segment that should just be all about tones and sounds. And that's where the prophet came in. And of course, the thing is about bugs. So I wanted to make the music to uh, run up your spine the same way it would if you were standing there looking at all those cockroaches in real life. So I wanted it to have that very uncomfortable feeling. So it was all about very twisted sounds. That came together. Now there was a musical theme to them, but you had to really search for it. <laughs> the question about um, something that tied you over the, like the zombie sounds are uh, the, the voices of like Ted Dan's in there. after they, they've been risen from that are very heavily altered. Was that something that you did with the synth or was that somebody else did that? No, I didn't do that. That was our sound designer. I didn't have anything to do with that part of it. And in that same story, there's a piece of music that is like <laughs> a minor version of Camptown Races. Well, that came from Leslie Nielsen. Leslie Nielsen would whistle that on the set. He kind of made it part of his character. So I just picked up on it and I started writing the theme, uh, sort of integrating it into the theme. And, and we all laughed and thought it was great. So we just, again, <laughs> we went whole hog on it. And yes, as a, as a minor, it really works great in a minor key <laughs> because it just takes on this whole different feel when you hear that because uh, everybody recognizes it immediately. Yeah. Uh, because it's one of those iconic melodies that everybody kind of knows. But then it's in a minor key and it's kind of like, wow, what's, it's making me feel very uncomfortable. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, how did Day of the Dead come about?
Well, by that time, I had moved out to Los Angeles and I was directing Tales from the Dark Side television shows and doing the music for them. And George called and said, uh, we've got the next project. And he sent me the script. And there was a long period of time where we weren't sure which script we were going to make. George had a version that was uh, quite elaborate and uh, it was a wonderful script. Absolutely great. But the uh, distributor said, look, if you're going to do this script and we're going to spend this kind of budget, it's got to come out as an R-rated pick. And George said, well, I don't do rated pictures. I mean, my fan base expects a level of, of gore and violence in the pictures that won't sustain an R. And we don't want an X because X was fully associated with porn by that time. Yeah. So the distributor said, OK, well, we'll do it unrated. However, that means financially you can only have this much money and not the other money. So George had to modify the script. But by that time, I had been writing sketches for George to hear to see what if I was going in the right direction. You know, again, like Creepshow, I, I'm a big believer in sort of uh, the counter intuitiveness of, of music as opposed to something that sort of is, oh, yeah, that's exactly what I would expect. Sure. And George's first script involved a great deal. Well, it was all set down in uh, Florida and the Keys and in the Car Caribbean. And so I started to uh, work out themes that had that kind of feel, not necessarily Calypso, but just sort of a, a Caribbean feel to it. We liked, but then when he had to revise the script, all of that went away. Uh, there is one scene at the very end where they they escape to an island off the Florida coast, but mostly the whole film takes place in this cave. Yeah. And so, uh, was the music going to work? Well, we still liked the theme, and so rather than write a very dark and grim horror score for that movie, uh, we went with the original kind of sketches and I elaborated on those. And so it's a much more melodic score than you would think for a movie like that. And it's uh, almost wall to wall music. So it's pretty intense, but it's, uh, it's really not the kind of score that you would normally think that kind of movie would have. So I think when it first came out, it was a little controversial. I think there were a lot of people that didn't like it very much. And, uh, but over time, and the movie didn't do that well either when it first came out. But over time, it's now considered a classic and people love the score. So and it's been released several times. So it kind of grows on you. <laughs> Day of the Dead is one of my favorite, if not my favorite of George's quote unquote dead films. Yeah. And your score, you know, is definitely one of my favorite scores, probably in general of horror, but uh, definitely of George's films. But I think what is interesting about it is, especially with like the way it opens, we have a preconception as a viewer of what the movie's going to be. Right. But your score is kind of, in a way, telling us that it's different than definitely Night of the Living Dead. I mean, I would say it's it's very similar to Dawn in terms of what's going on. But I think what's interesting about Day of the Dead is it's really not a horror film kind of in a traditional sense that I think most viewers think of a horror movie. So for me, 
your opening theme cues into like this is going to be especially that scene is going to be maybe a little more action oriented a different kind of ride than I think maybe people were expecting. And so maybe that's one of the reasons why maybe the score itself was a little controversial. But in the context of the movie, I think the score works great. I mean, obviously, it's a very dark movie. Yeah. And you have the supernatural horror elements of the zombies. But really, what's going on in the movie is conflict between characters. Well, it's interesting you should say that because George's attitude always was he wasn't really interested in the zombies. Yeah. What he was interested in was the uh, disintegration of the humans that were around them. And so in Dawn, of course, that's really a a movie. That's a a survival movie. That's about survival and his commentary on consumerist society. Yeah. With Day, it was a completely different thing. It was, yeah, it was about survival, but it was really about the disintegration of community. These people are trapped down there and they've got to try and work together and live together and survive together and protect each other. And they just can't do it. It just collapses. And it's very emotional in many ways. And again, I'm not trying to dress this up beyond what it is, but I think that was what George was going for. And so the music, I wanted to have more of an emotional tug than, say, the tongue-in-cheek moments of Creepshow or the, uh, the, the kind of craziness of Dawn. So that's the kind of music I wrote for it. It was really not about the zombies. It was about those people, the, uh, the scientists in particular, desperate to survive and figure out an answer to this plague, and, and the soldiers who basically had a myopic view of how to deal with things, which is just kill them, yeah. and how, that, how these two forces just disintegrated in front of our eyes. So there was something pathetic and uh, about that. And I wanted the music to reflect it. Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of the score is really beautiful and poignant in that way. I mean, in no disrespect to the film or George, but I think the music as good film music should do does kind of elevate the picture and hammer home those things, the, the, the relationships, the emotional aspects of the film, the drama that's happening. But, I mean, there are plenty of eerie tones and, and, like, oh, yeah. <laughs> and regular horror music within it. But I think what stands out for me, and I would imagine most listeners, is the more melodic, emotionally driven music. Because that's what, I mean, music is so, for, for listening, you know, is so tied into, obviously, melody, but also emotional content. Like, we have emotional responses to music, and that's one of the reasons why music lovers love music so much just because how it makes them feel not so much how much it can make you bob your head or tap your foot but it's the emotional response you have to it and so i think for me the music that you wrote for it really helps drive all that stuff in the movie
But also, given that it's the mid-80s, and some could say that a synth score like that could date it or make it sound cheap or whatever, but it was the mid-80s and it was a scoring style of of the day. And in a lot of ways, I feel like your score, for me as a listener anyway, kind of elevates the production values. And because the score sounds so slick and kind of high quality of synth, you know, it's much more akin to some of the bigger productions or popular television dramas that were using synth scores and even pop music at that time. So this, I think your score does a, t- a ton for that film. Um, I don't know if you have any thoughts about that aspect of it, but I would love to hear more about the actual process and how it compares to and differs from your experience with Creepshow? Well, you've hit on a couple of things. First of all, I appreciate what you're saying about the music in relationship to the film. And the only thing that I'll add to that is that, again, it was uh, inspired totally by George's desires for the film. Um, He was all for that approach musically. Sure, yeah. Uh, It wasn't that I just handed it to him and said, oh, well, this is a, man, this is a new approach, which is kind (laughs) of cool for this movie. Yeah, yeah. It was uh, definitely everything that you said about the emotionalism of it and uh, the cues that I was trying to get to the audience came from the picture, from the film. Of course. And it was a really interesting experience to do because I was in Los Angeles, but after the production, I moved back to Pittsburgh and set up shop down below the editing rooms and set up my gear there, which was a piano and the Prophet. And I had a uh, Yamaha D7 at the time. And I temped the whole movie. I would be down there working all day, coming up with cues, and then I would record them and come up and we would lay them against picture so George could hear it and make changes or I can make changes because they'd recut the scene or whatever. So I was there, I don't know, for a good four weeks writing and temping the movie while they were cutting the picture. And that's kind of unheard of. It was, it was a fantastic experience. Yeah. And then came time to record it for real and get it ready for the mix. And we did all our mixes in Los Angeles at a place called Todd AO, which is this, fabulous classic mixing stage in Los Angeles where they've done so many fabulous movies. You can't, I can't even name them all. Sure. And we were on, this was like for kids from Pittsburgh. This was like, Holy shit, man, I'm sitting on the stage where (laughs) Hitchcock used to mix and where, you know, all these, it just blew my mind. Spielberg would be mixing ET in the next room. We were on stage B doing day of the dead. And then we'd all go and hang out in the, in the lobby, you know, and, and talk about what we were doing. It was hysterical. It was fantastic. But recording day, we did step it up a little bit. I, I had a recording studio in Los Angeles, and I brought John Sutton out, and he produced it again for me. By that time, technology had changed a little bit, even from when Creepshow was being done. This is like five years later. So I had the good fortune to choose a studio that had uh, one of these Fairlight music processors. Yeah. I, I'm sorry, not the Fairlight, the Kurzweil. Okay, yeah. Uh, although we had a Fairlight too, but the Kurzweil was and still is one of the most fabulous, I, I don't even want to say music processors because it actually is a sampler. It's got unbelievable sounds in it that are real sounds. Uh, they went around and got the violin section from the New York Philharmonic and you know that kind of stuff and recorded it so that I could play the Kurzweil and get these phenomenal sounds out of it. We weren't trying to imitate 
orchestral sounds, although I used the orchestral sounds. I wasn't trying to fake anybody out and say, oh, you know, you're listening to a real orchestra. Yeah. That wasn't the point. But those sounds gave me the ability in the studio to modify them and, and work with them and create almost its own orchestral sound, if you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah. And yes, it does feel of its time, the 80s and that whole synth thing. But I thought it had, rather than just have like a little Farfisa kind of synth going on, it had a bigger sound. And I could multi-track many instruments. I also was able to have a couple of live instrumentals come and join me, which I never had been able to do before. Yeah. And one of them uh, was the guitarist Grant Geisman, who... Uh, uh, is a phenomenal jazz musician and session player in Los Angeles. Who is a composer in his own right, and for the fun of your listeners here um next time you listen to the theme for two and a half men grant wrote that (laughs) (laughs) so and among others but anyway he came over and he did all those fantastic guitar solos and played along with the other cues that i asked him to do we had a great percussionist on it so i was able to make it a bigger sound and times had changed we had more tech available to us even before you got to that point though the actual construction of the temp score and and working you know there's the you've told the story about how you're kind of in the basement and they would drop tapes through the mail slot to you and (laughs) yep and that kind of way of working and you've also already established that a lot of the musical ideas had come from that original script, and so George was already on board with a lot of them. But when you're producing that much music, cause like you said, there's a lot of music in that film. I mean, maybe you know, maybe a standard feature that we think of now maybe has between 70 and 80 minutes worth of music, but I think Day of the Dead has, uh, has like over 100 minutes worth of music. Yeah, it was, it was wall-to-wall, man. George, he would laugh. He'd say, man, you're writing a rock opera here. <laughs> I'm just kind of interested in your process. You know, obviously some composers have very similar processes to each other. Others have uh, very different processes. I find that the more orchestral score guys that, you know, maybe went to school for, for music and come from a classical background, they they tend to work more similarly. Guys like you that are coming from a more of a self-taught rock-oriented background have a more improvisational style. You know, I know you touched on it already kind of a few times, but I was wondering if we could just talk more specifically about what your process was. And we can use Day of the Dead as kind of the example of like, you're watching the film, you have ideas already, you sit down at your keyboard, like what's the process? Well, it usually starts with a theme. It's just me banging away at the piano and playing something until I like it. And if I come up with that, uh, and it's it's usually just a motif of some kind, like in Creepshow, that beginning motif, and in day, the A minor chord progression. If I like it, then what I do is just expand upon it. And in both those films, the the uh, the theme is recapitulated in several different ways all through the film. Sure. Especially in day, you hear that same motif over and over and over again. It's just reconfigured to fit the moment. Thank you. 
so it starts that way. And uh, once I've got that in my mind, then every time I'm looking at a scene, and you were, you're right, that's exactly the way it was. I would be down there in the morning, and I hear the sound in the other room of somebody slipping a VHS tape through the, or actually it's probably three-quarter inch then, uh, through the door. And I would go, and I would put it in my machine, which, by the way, did not sync to any of my tape recorders. Yeah, yeah. It was all on the fly. <laughs> It wasn't like it is now where everything could be hooked up together and you're, you know, you're all in sync. I would just watch the piece and I might even start with the, the themes that I already had and start playing them. And of course they don't work exactly because the scene is different. The, the emotions are different. I would then start to mess around with it. I'd play it differently or I would come up with something entirely new. I'd hit a bad note, which would lead me into something else. Yeah. And I, I don't, I don't write it. I don't uh, score it as, as it were. And because I was performing it all myself, because we didn't have any money for any other musicians, I didn't need to write it down. I didn't have to pass out, uh, you know, lead sheets or full score or any of that. So I did my own orchestrations just by playing them because of necessity. That's the only way I could do it. Yeah. So uh, ideas would just spring forth or I'd be sitting there not knowing what to do. So I would just absentmindedly start goofing off on one of my machines and the sound would come out and I'd say, Oh, that sounds kind of cool. I like that. Maybe that would work here. So I would put it up against the picture, see if it worked, play around with it. What, what else does it need? What else does it need? Something on top? Does it need uh, a little uh, counter melody over here? You know, that kind of stuff. It was just sort of making it up. I'm not one of those guys that can sort of hear it full blown. Yeah. I mean, that happens later, you know, when I'm dreaming or when I'm asleep or when I can't, you know, the, the tape loops start going in your head and you can't get <laughs> the damn thing out of it. It's yeah. just came over and over and over again. And then you go back the next morning and you revise and you add stuff and everything else. But initially you just sit there. I, I can't think it and then write it down. I mean, some guys, I'm just not that well-schooled or trained. They can sit with a blank staff sheet and just write it out. And they hear it in their head. <laughs> yeah. But it's just a bunch of dots on a piece of paper. I've never been able to do that. You know, when we get towards the end of the movie uh, and it becomes kind of more action and horror oriented, we're heading into the third act and the music changes as does the film. When we get into the sequence, uh, like in the caves and stuff, I've read that your love for the film Forbidden Planet and the weird score even though i don't even think they were billed as composers but between bb and lewis baron And also your love for Edgar Varez. Maybe inspired some of the weird sounds. Well, 
Absolutely. I mean, you've hit on two. When I was uh, in school in theater, I would sit in a. Sometimes I would go into the theater and turn off all the lights and just put on uh, Verez and just let him take me away. So yes, that was a huge inspiration. And of course, I love Forbidden Planet. That's one of the seminal as a movie. It's one of the seminal influences on me since I saw it when I was just a little boy, a little kid. So the atonal quality of some of that stuff worked really great in the caves. The caves were a very eerie and uh, unpleasant place to be for six months. <laughs> the temperature never changed. It was always like a damp 50 degrees. At one point or another, everybody on the crew got sick with what we used to call minitis. It was, uh, I mean, you'd get out, we didn't see daylight for about six months because you'd go in at like five in the morning. It's dark outside. You'd come out seven at night. It was dark still again. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. Uh, we were really mole people for the, that production. And in the, in the caves, the wind, the atmosphere had its own sound. And the echoing nature of the place was just really creepy. So I wanted to enhance that. When they're corralling the zombies the first time, there's nothing at all musical about that scene. There's nothing at all melodic about that scene. It's just real. Well, until they get to the actual yanking of them, and then I get into this very rhythmic thing. But for the most part, it's just odd sounds and uh, little figures that just happen and sort of in the distance. You think. You're not sure whether that's... And then there were bats flying around in there all the time. And they had their own sound. I mean, I'm, I couldn't hear their echolocation, but you could hear their squeaks and you could hear their flapping. And that was also pretty creepy. So I just tried to imitate that kind of stuff or at least come up with the feeling musically to compare with what it really was like when you were down there. curiosity and i think a lot of people that will listen to this podcast are soundtrack collectors so i'd like to talk a little bit about the actual process of the soundtracks the original soundtrack albums that came out for instance like what was the logic of having an end song for the end credits of day of the dead well that was really uh, the record companies doing the first score that i did for creep show uh verez saraban wanted to put it out and the problem was that on an LP back in the day, they couldn't put all the music of the movie on it. Yeah. It's only like 45 minutes worth of music. You yeah. Put on there's, it. There, weren't enough, there weren't enough grooves. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> so what I sold them on was the idea of creating suites for each one of the episodes. So that release, the very first Creepshow release, I, I went back into the studio and I essentially took different cues and I merged them together musically, cross-fading between one and the other and created a suite of the cues from the individual episodes that felt like one single piece of music. Yeah. When we did Day, a different record company came on board 
and wanted to do the score and uh, the producers made a deal with them. And part of the deal was that they would take my theme music and they would uh, have a band write some words to it. And that would give them potentially a, a single to sell or whatever. So the guys, I think the band's name was called Modern Man and a fellow by the name of Jim Sparacino, Sputzy, uh, wrote some lyrics for it. And it, I guess the, the hope was that there would be a lot of sort of that kind of music in the movie. But George and I didn't want that. But we did compromise and, and allow that uh, one song, I think it's The World Inside Your Eyes, to be played over the end credits. Hold me tight, babe. Take me to the world inside your eyes. Take me to the world inside your eyes. And to his credit, George went along with it. I don't think he was really that excited about it, having a pop tune at the end of the movie, but it was my music just reimagined in that song form. He allowed it to go in there, so I uh, really respect him for at least living up to what we had promised this company. But that's how that happened. Yeah. Then in later incarnations, La La Land Records came to me and wanted to release these both these scores, and they said, well, we now, because we're in the CD world, the digital world, we don't have to worry about uh, running time on a on an LP. So we can put all the music out, and that's what they did. I went back and found all of the uh, master tapes, and uh, we remastered each and every cue for the CD releases. And then when Waxwork came along, we did the same for the LPs. And and to their credit, they wanted to do double album sets, so they were able to put out all the music on LP. And I'm eternally grateful because both those companies, La La Land and Waxwork, man, those are first-rate companies. Yeah, definitely. I was so pleased and proud of the way they put them out. They allowed me to go back in and work on the remastering. And the guy they had up in uh, Seattle that did them, just just great. And the, the quality of those releases is just fantastic. Okay, that's about the midway point and probably a good place to stop for now. I, of course, need to thank John Harrison for being part of the show. Please come back in two weeks for part two of this fascinating conversation, when we will continue discussing John's relationship with George Romero and his work on Tales from the Dark Side, the movie. We will also explore his process as a screenwriter, examine film scoring from the director's perspective, discuss his working relationship with composer and past score-to-death guest Joseph LaDuca and much, much more. If you've been enjoying the podcast, the book Scored to Death, Conversations with Some of Horror's Greatest Composers is available on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and many other places you buy books. Or you can order a signed copy from me directly. Just contact me through scoredtodeath.com. You can also find and follow me on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram at Scored to Death. Scored to Death, the podcast, is now available on most podcast apps and distribution sites as well as on SoundCloud and YouTube. Please consider subscribing, rating, and reviewing the show on iTunes or on whichever provider you use to listen to podcasts. Ratings and reviews will help raise awareness for the show. My other podcast, Saturday Night Movie Sleepovers, can also be found on iTunes, Google Play, and most places you find podcasts, and on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, at Sat Sleepovers. 
you can find John at johnharrisonwriterdirector.com. And I should note that the short clips of music used in this episode were used strictly to put aspects of the interview into context, to audibly illustrate specific things discussed and for educational purposes. The soundtracks and albums discussed in this episode were That's What I'm Here For and Live in Japan by Roy Buchanan, which are both available on CD and vinyl LP from Polydor. Creepshow is available on CD from La La Land Records and on vinyl LP from Waxwork Records. Day of the Dead is also available on CD from La La Land Records and on vinyl LP from Waxwork Records. And Forbidden Planet by Lewis and B.B. Barron. It's available on CD from Small Planet Records and on vinyl LP from GNP Crescendo. Thank you so much for listening to Scored to Death the Podcast. And please come back in two weeks for this interview's exciting conclusion. Music